Thanks, Matt. Good morning, guys. So we're continuing our uh, Advent Christian sermon series through the doctrines of grace. And today we're looking specifically at how the Father, God our Father, loves us unconditionally. His unconditional love. So unconditional love is one of those biblical phrases that has a lot of widespread use in our culture today. We have TV shows and music about it. Katy Perry sings about it. You know, maybe trying to get back to some of her gospel roots. There's probably hundreds at this point, Nicholas Sparks books and movies that all have the same kind of plot, all trying to figure out and look at this unconditional love. We see it everywhere in our culture, and it's all an ideal that we strive to as well. We understand what it is, we know what it is, we, we try to attain it, especially in our relationships with our families, with our kids. I know one of the uh, biggest blessings in my life these past few years has been able to uh, serve in the student ministry here at Seven Mile. And I love all of those kids so much. But even my love runs out sometimes <laughs> with some of them. And I won't name any names, but you know, sometimes Sam and Colin do just get on your nerves. <laughs> so you got to take them out back and uh, take them out to the Gaga pit in the back. If you don't know what that is, it's a game. You just got to beat them a couple times or humiliate them at some Halo and then you're back to normal. We see it everywhere in our culture. One of the greatest examples, though, of unconditional love, I think, is when we see it through adoption. And I know some of you guys are familiar with that process. Some of the families in our churches are going through that process right now. But it's the act of taking someone that you don't know, that's not your own, and bringing it in and making her your own. Even though you have to go through so much heartache and pain, and there's a lot of struggles, a lot of things that go along with that. But what an amazing example of unconditional love. And that's exactly how God, our Father, operates with us. He demonstrates his unconditional love for us by taking us, who are sinners, traitors to God, and adopting us into his family, making us children of God. Here's what we read in 1 John chapter 3. And it says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. See it. See the kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. I don't know how you might be feeling this morning, but I think a lot of you might be feeling the same way that I do at times, where you're just not sure why a God, this holy God, would decide to love a sinner like me. When you look in the mirror and you don't really like who you see looking back at you. There's days and weeks that we feel this way. You know, last week we talked about the doctrine of total depravity and the, our desperate need and how you know, sinful we are and the depth of our sin and misery apart from God. And we can let that weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame weigh us down and we can despair. But God loves us unconditionally. He loves us not based on anything that we've done or anything that we bring to the table, but it is completely and in every way unconditional based on nothing we've done, but only out of the great love with which he loves us. And this verse shows that. So we're continuing our Christmas Advent season on the doctrines of grace. Remember our theme verse, I think I have it up here, Matthew one twenty one, And it says, For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people 
from their sins. Last week we looked at total depravity, the, the their sins part, the end of the verse. Now we're working our way backward and we're looking at His people. What does it mean? What does it look like to be His people? To be called by God? To be adopted into God's family? What does that mean to be God's people? Let's pray to our Heavenly Father and then we'll look at that together. God, You are our Heavenly Father. It's Your love that gives us energy this morning to come and gather together and worship and praise You. I pray that You would open up Your Scriptures to us this morning. I pray that that my words would be true to Your words and that You would impress on our hearts the beauty and the glory of Your love for us that You have given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. It's in Your Beautiful, glorious name we pray. Amen. So the Father's unconditional love. The theological term behind that this morning is what we call unconditional election. If you're keeping score at home, that's the second of these doctrines of grace. The first total depravity we looked at last week, our desperate need. But now we're looking at this unconditional election how God loves us unconditionally. Some of you might have heard the term predestination. That term goes along with that as well. And all that word means is a choosing, to choose beforehand, the pre-before-destination. Predestination or a predetermining. How God chooses or how God elects His people. I, uh, I went to a small Christian college in the great state of Missouri. If you don't know where Missouri is, just uh, go to the middle of the country and just pick any of the semi-square, kind of odd-looking shaped states, and that's really close enough. Uh, but in our intro class, our professor asked us to raise our hands if we believed in predestination. He asked us to raise our hands. No hands went up. In that denomination, in that church culture, we didn't maybe understand exactly what predestination was. We might not have been able to articulate it. But what we did know was that it was a bad term. It was a bad thing. We did not want to believe it. There was a lot of bad connotations. It had become a buzzword in that culture. So we were not raising our hands for that. Our professor went on to explain to us that all of our hands should have gone up Because predestination is a biblical term. It shows up in the Bible. And so the question isn't, do you believe in predestination? But the question is, what do you believe about it? Or how do you understand it? And so our professor was right in that sense. He, I think, ended up being wrong in his understanding of how predestination works, what it looks like. But he was right in the sense that we do have to believe it. We have to come to some kind of understanding about what it means. So we are going to look at that today. But what I want us to make sure we walk away with this morning is to not get lost in all of the theological jargon that does get thrown around, and we're going to look at some of that this morning. But to not get lost there, but to always come back and understand that at the end of the day, what this comes down to, the heart level of it, is that it's God's unconditional love for us. That's the ultimate meaning behind all these terms, is that that is God's love for us. God's unconditional love. That's all it is. And so this morning, I want to look at three different aspects of this or three different ways we can understand it. And so we'll be doing that by asking three different questions. By asking who God loves, by asking how God loves, 
and then asking why God loves. The who, the how, and the why. Another way we can say this is who God chooses in election, how God chooses, and why God chooses. But So we'll start with the first one here. is who God loves. Who does God love? Who does he extend his love to? And the very short answer and the amazing and hope-filling answer is that God loves sinners. That's who God loves. That's you and me. The Bible, in essence, is one long, overarching story of God's redemptive plan for his people. In fact, after the third chapter in Genesis, after sin enters the world, God begins his redemptive plan for humanity. And the rest of the 66 books in your Bible and the hundreds of other chapters are all progressively working through how God brings about his redemption to his creation. The way that God works in humanity by choosing to love people in that way. And so we see this first with a guy named Abraham. You might remember him. He was chosen by God to be the father of the nation of Israel. And do you remember his background or his story? You know, what was his character when God called him? He was a sinner, a wicked sinner. Specifically, he was an idolater, a son of idolaters, living as far away from God as possible. You know, God wasn't even a blip on his radar. Uh, This man, he was 75 years old, a wicked idolater, and so far away from God. And it was this guy that God chose to begin his redemptive story. He was not a blue-chip prospect that you try to build a team around. He was a wicked sinner like all of us. He exemplified what we learned last week about total depravity, that none are seeking after God, not even one. But it was through this sinner that God demonstrated his love. He chose this man to be the father of the nation of Israel, the chosen nation of God to be the light for all the nations of the world, through whom God was going to extend all of his salvation to the ends of of the earth. And God's love for his chosen people was unconditional, and it had to be for this guy. He was not seeking after God, but God sought after him. And that's good news for us today, because we're all in the same place as Abraham. And we find great comfort as we go through the rest of the redemptive story, starting with Abraham, but working our way through, and we can just hit on a few of these. Abraham was a wicked sinner. Let's look at the other individuals, the other main characters in our Bible. Abraham's son, Isaac, was a coward, kind of a liar. Isaac's son, Jacob, that was the guy that was renamed Israel, from whom the 12 tribes of Israel came, that God built the nation of Israel from. That man was a liar himself and stole his brother's inheritance. Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, they hated Israel. Their brothers. Eleven of them hated the other brother and sold him into slavery. I know some of our students can relate to that feeling. The nation of Israel itself, time and time again, consistently rebelled against God's word and against God Himself. They built a golden calf in the desert, rebelling against Him, worshiping other gods instead of the one true God. Moses, great hero of the faith, disobeyed God. The people rejected God as their own king and, and Uh, demanded that they have an earthly king in his stead. And so they got Saul, the first king of Israel that God chose, and he ended up valuing his own glory over God's. Next in line was King David, the man after God's own heart, and this man whom God loved and chose committed adultery and then committed murder to cover it up. And the story goes on 
and on and on. And we see two consistent themes appear in all these stories, that there is some great sin that God's people commit, but there is even greater love. God loved the people of Israel. And as we read in God's redemptive story, we read it into the New Testament, we see that it was not just the nation of Israel, but all of us through faith became descendants of Abraham. God grafted us into that family, adopted us in love. And that includes you and me. And that is great news because we're all wicked sinners, just like all of these guys. We're broken people, messed up people that commit all kinds of things, that do all kinds of things, that say all kinds of stuff that hurt others and tear others down. And so if you are here this morning and and you're a little messed up and you got some stuff going on, don't worry, you're in the right place because God loves sinners. So we know who God loves. He loves sinners. But how does he demonstrate that love? How does it work? How does God choose or raise up for himself a people? Paul helps us understand this and some of the deep theological truths behind it. And so look at me, we'll move into the New Testament here with Ephesians 1. And Paul says this, this bombshell of a verse. He says, even as he, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. We could spend a month just on that passage alone, and this passage begins to answer the the why question, why does God love, but let's first look at the, the how question. How does God love? How does God choose? It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It says in love he predestined us for adoption. There's our biblical term, predestination. And that's the how. That's the how of God chooses. That's the how of God loves. And so there are two ways, then, that we can understand God's predestination or God's election. We can understand it as conditional or unconditional. So this next screen here, how God loves conditional or unconditional. There's two ways that we have come to understand and make sense of this passage. Last week we mentioned that there was a fiery debate going on back in the 1600s between two different groups of theologians. One group following the teachings of this guy named Jacob Arminius, this Arminian understanding, they developed these five articles. And one of those articles addressed this very question. How does God elect? How does God choose? How does God love? And their first article that they put forward answered that question. And they said, that it was a conditional election. It was a conditional love. Specifically, God chose those who he knew would have faith in him and accept the gospel. In this view, the condition on which God elects people is he looks down the corridor of time and he sees all those who will accept the good news of the gospel and have faith in him. And based on that condition, He elects them. That is the election. That is how he chose them before the foundations of the world. It's based on a foreknowledge of future faith. After those articles were published and put forth, 
a different group of theologians following the teachings of another man named John Calvin developed a, the Calvinistic understanding of the doctrines of grace. And, and that's where we get these doctrines of grace from, these five points of Calvinism. So we looked at the first one last week, total depravity. And from here we get the second one, unconditional election. It was based as a reaction against this conditional understanding that they brought this unconditional uh, understanding to it. And so instead of agreeing with the conditional view, they rejected it, and rather they asserted that there was no condition, not even the foreknowledge of future faith that God used in choosing his people, but rather it was completely unconditional, and it was God's sovereign choice, his sovereign choice alone, that he raised up for himself a people. And so what I'm suggesting to us this morning is that when we ask the question, how does God choose, how does God love, that it's the second view, this unconditional view that is the biblical one. And the reason for that is because it's true. That's a little tongue-in-cheek, but the reason that we affirm and embrace this view is because we believe and see that it is consistent, first of all, with our understanding of total depravity of what we looked at last week, that the first doctrine of grace, the total depravity. And that's why we start with that one, because we have to understand that first before we can understand anything else. Our depravity, our radical corruption, our desperate need, until we have eyes to see the depth of our own sin and misery, we don't have the context to understand the rest. God's love is beautiful. Just like the example before God's love is like a radiant diamond, but you have to put that diamond against some jet black fabric to really see it shine. And before we can see the blinding brightness of God's love, we have to understand our own desperate need. And so that's why we hold to the unconditional view. The answer to our second question, how does God love us, has to be unconditionally. Because if his love was conditioned on anything else, not least of which whether or not we would respond favorably to the gospel message, then what hope would any of us have? If it is true, if the Bible is true that there are none who seek after God, not even one, then who of us, when we were dead in our sins, would have made ourselves alive to respond to the gospel? The gospel proclamation not only fell on deaf ears, but they were dead ears. We were dead in our sin, and there was no life left in us. But from the foundations of the world, God chose us in love, adopting us according to the purpose of his will. Praise be to God. Now, I know there's some sharp edges to this doctrine, and I'm not pretending to have settled the debate this morning in just a half hour. Uh, I'm also not pretending to have been exhaustive in all of the different things that attend this difficult uh, doctrine. But with all of these things, you know, we invite more conversations to be had and more thinking to be done on them. But with that said, I thought it would benefit us to spend a little time this morning to look at some common objections that I think uh, come up just naturally from talking about this. We spent last week in the first three chapters of Romans, and in many ways, Romans is just an extended commentary on our theme verse for this series, that he will save his people from their sins. 
Paul, the author of Romans, he addresses the doctrine of sin in the beginning of the, of the book. But then he turns to the question of election and God's sovereign choice in chapter 9. And so we're going to spend some time there now. In this chapter, Paul is addressing the sovereign choice of God and choosing people for himself. And he uses this biblical example as an illustration. And he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, remember him, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So much that needs to be said about this, but what I want us to see here is a clear depiction of unconditional election. What was the condition said upon which Jacob was chosen over Esau? Was it because of anything that they did? No, it says clearly, it was because of him who calls. It was God in order for his purpose of election that it might continue. Now, what was the purpose of election? We'll get to the why in a bit. But if you're anything like me, when you first read this verse or when you think about it, a lot of objections, some reactions come to mind. The first one might be, how is that fair? When God decides to love Jacob and Jacob and hate Esau, and what does the language of hate there mean? How is that fair? It sounds like God is being capricious or it sounds like he's being impulsive. It sounds like God is being as fickle as you know, a fantasy football playoff match when a running back decides to f- score four touchdowns and ruin your chances of winning the playoffs. I'm not bitter about it. I'm just saying that was rough to deal with. But how do we understand this? Where is the fairness in that? Where is the fairness in God's choice? I know some of our students are in speech and debate right now, and I never did speech and debate, so they'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, or they can debate me about it. But one of the things that I understand about speech and debate is that you have to know your opponent's objections. You have to know their positions. And not only should you know their objections, but it helps if you're even able to articulate them better than your opponent can. Paul, the apostle, the author of Romans, is an excellent debater. He knows the objections that come from what he just said, and he addresses them immediately. So we ask, how can this be fair? How can God be fair in this sovereign choice? We ask that, and he responds in verse 14. He says this, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The question of fairness, it's a question of justice. And Paul is making it crystal clear that no one ever receives injustice from God. Uh, I promise that this is going to be the only diagram I have this morning, but I felt and thought this diagram was very helpful in me understanding uh, this process, this question, so I wanted to offer it up to you as well. Uh, Pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul made this to help answer the question, is there injustice in God? And so we see there's two categories in question here. In one category, we see justice. In the other category, 
we see non-justice. And within non-justice, there is mercy and there is injustice. And you only receive one of those two. Everyone receives either justice or mercy. But nobody ever receives injustice. The sinner who does not receive God's mercy, the sinner who does not receive God's mercy, does he receive injustice? No. He receives exactly what all of us deserve. He receives God's justice. We might not understand how that all works, but what we can know for certain is that God is always just in his will. Praise God for that. But you say, fine, I'll accept that. But if God has predestined us to some degree, if this is all according to his sovereign choice, then how can we still be blamed for our own sin and for our own actions? If all of this is God's will, then how are we still held at fault? Well, Paul is ready for us again. And so he comes back and says this in verse 19. And he says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who can resist God's will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And here is the tension. It is difficult. It is impossible for us to wrap our minds around it completely. But what we have to do and what Paul is saying to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he is telling us to do, is that we have to hold in one hand God's sovereignty while still holding on to the other our responsibility for sin. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We have to hold those two in tension as best we can. We are responsible for our sin. And we dove headfirst into those waters. It was not by accident that we sinned in Adam. We didn't accidentally slip off the ledge, but we jumped in with both feet. And I, I wish I did have a better answer this morning. I, I don't have a better answer, but I do have one consolation, and that is that Paul, the greatest theologian to ever live, uh, doesn't have a better answer for us either. He continues on for another two chapters in Romans discussing this further. He keeps going until he comes to the end of chapter 11, and I'll just read it for you here. After so many words written about this subject, he just has to throw up his hands and confess this and say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So we know who God loves. He loves his people from Israel and all the way through history up to today through his church. This bunch of messed up guys, you and me, that he calls sons and daughters. He loves us. We know that. And even if we can't explain it completely, we know how God loves. He loves us unconditionally. Uh, But one question is left, and that question is, why does God love? You know, we could all share stories all day about different ways that we have shown love and received rejection in return. How we've been hurt by experiences within relationships of unfaithfulness, of mistreatment, on and on. And the Bible is clear and full of examples how God's people, how his chosen people have consistently rejected him. How 
they received God's unconditional love and returned it with injustice and violence and idolatry and hatred. And we receive God's love and we don't love others the same way in return. And we do the same thing. And so the question is, why? Why did God in his infinite wisdom decide to love a wicked sinner like me? Why did he decide to put up with some messed up people like us? So let's go back to our Ephesians text. And he says this. We read it before. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Why did God love us in this way? That we should be holy and blameless. Why did God love us in this way? So that according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Why did God love us? in this way, so that we would be blessed in the Beloved. Why did God love us? Here's here's why. It was for His glory, and it was for our joy. It was for His glory and for our joy. His glory was shown off throughout the entire world by His incredible act of unconditional love. That we should be called children of God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. That we should be made holy and blameless through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. God is glorified in His redemption of His people. And it was for our joy that we would be blessed in the Beloved, that we would find our joy in the Creator once again, the kind of joy that we had once before, but then sin entered the world and we lost it. That was the kind of joy that our first parent our first parents had in the garden when they lived and walked with God and saw and talked to him face to face. That was the joy that exists and that is our joy available to us again today. So in this Advent season, at this time it's all about Jesus. This Advent season is about announcing his arrival on earth. Jesus is the full radiance of the glory of God. And he is the ultimate example of the Father's love for us. So this Christmas season, in the midst of all of the busyness and everything else that's going on, remember how the Father has loved you. Remember how the Father has loved us. Through his Son, Jesus, whom he sent. So that, by his Son, he might adopt many other sons and daughters for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. God, our our Father, you've given us the privilege to call you Father, and we are blown away by your love. That while we were still the worst of sinners, when no one else would love us, you loved us first. Let us love others that way this season, we pray. Amen.